We could. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of... It's uh, still beneath the screen of the Ultra Critics. We've been over this. <laughs> Several times. I feel <laughs> like you haven't done a voice in a while, and I forgot to remind you before this session that you should get it together. Uh, look, <laughs> uh, you're not the boss of me, or my voice. Hi. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Thad. I am not always here, just often. 99.9% of the time, and my other co-host, Kara. I'm I'm emotionally, like, available, but not truly here. Fair. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We're continuing our propaganda and Tifa themes uh, series, and this week we have a very <laughs> a fun episode as we look at... <laughs> fun in quotations, not really. Um, Mississippi Burning. Illuminating episode? Yeah, an illuminating episode. We look at 1985's Mississippi Burning. I believe 1985. 1988. 1988, I'm sorry. And 2014 Selma. Two movies about the civil rights movement, uh, framed through very different lenses <laughs> and have very different uh, messages, I should say. Uh, goal, yeah. It's goals. goals, aims, something like that. All right. So uh... before we get started, have you guys seen either one of these before? No, I hadn't. Okay. Yeah, I actually had not seen Selma before, which I don't know how I missed. I, uh, have you seen uh, Mississippi Burning before? No, but that one's less surprising. <laughs> Mississippi, Burn- Mississippi Burning is a movie from the 80s of no particular really long-standing note. Like, I'd heard the title before, but it's not one that I ever really hear or see referenced. Right. Which is interesting considering how stacked it is with character actors that I have seen throughout my entire life. Right. It well, it was huge at the time. Oh, I I, I see. I completely understand why. Uh, and like, I, I'm not surprised that it, you know, was uh, nominated for an Oscar or several. I guess. Well, okay. Uh, also understand that it is one of Ebert's great movies in his three volume great movies. List. Really. And it is in my the a copy of his book. The best of Roger Ebert, Awake in the Dark, 40 Years of Reviews, Essays, and Interviews, one of the 40 reviews that he chose to put in this book. Okay, well, first of all, nerd. Uh, <laughs> second, that does shock me. Uh, <laughs> like, it has a weird place in cinematic history. Yeah. I think it hits right at that place of unfamiliarity for me, which would be the the very early 80s, I would say, like, high cinema. Because the early 80s, like, um, pop cinema, I'm pretty good with. I was born in 86, so, like, it, you know, jumps around a little bit. Hmm. And then my dad loves classic movies. So I've watched a lot of stuff from the 50s and a lot of stuff from the very late 80s onward. But this period in time right here... Uh, is not one I'm familiar with, like in terms of like what was happening in film, which is a little odd. Hmm. Well, also, like it's very much part of the '80s in terms of like, for lack of a better term, adult cinema. Yeah, like yeah. like this isn't like pop culture so much. It is like this is the quote unquote serious film. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that, that's 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 like yeah, that's exactly the place that I'm missing in like my right. knowledge base. It's very much one of those like it's the movie is about what it's about. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this was also like to give a an idea of what it was up against. The one the movie that beat it for best picture was Rain Man. 
So these are both movies that were really great at the time, but through like a lens of <laughs> 40 years later, you're like, hmm, they're a little like problematic. Oh. Like they got the spirit, but I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable with everything that they say. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. this is the perfect example of how movies don't change, but we do. Right. Yeah. Because in a weird way, because I mentioned Ebert, he is Selma of Selma director Ava DuVernay cites him as one of the like main reasons she has a career. Mm, yeah, I could see that. And so, like, that's a weird bridge between those two movies. Um, but Mississippi Burning, uh, Kara, do you want to describe the plot of Mississippi Burning? Uh, yeah, so both of these movies are based on real events somewhat loosely or creatively interpreted to like be a more coherent narrative story. Um, Especially in terms of Mississippi burning. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so this is, to be clear, this is the plot of the movie. Not and what I actually will, happened. <laughs> and I will let you know like what things that are definitively based on real events. Uh, Mississippi burning is based on the real event of is it 63 or 64? I think it's 63. 64. It was 64? Yeah. Um, yeah, because it was post-Kennedy Seth. Anyway, uh, 64, where there was a mass effort to register black voters across the South. And three organizers went to um, register voters in this county. Uh, two of them were white and Jewish. And one of them was black. And they were murdered. Their bodies were not found for quite a while. The FBI went to come and find them and eventually found them buried in a quarry. Uh, the trial went nowhere, and eventually the FBI managed to nail some of the conspirators and their violent murder um, on sort of like charges of like civil rights violations. And then some of them went to jail for a couple of years. Uh, isn't this also the case where somebody was like arrested and jailed for this in like 2005? I believe so. Um, I could be wrong. Yeah. So like very much justice was not done. <laughs> the, the framing of the film is it mainly focuses on two white FBI agents. One who is, um, oh my God, what's the actor's name? That is the kid. Are we talking Gene Hackman or are we talking Willem Dafoe? Willem Dafoe, Jesus. A very, very young Willem Dafoe. Very cute. Um, <laughs> and as, uh, as if guess, his rubber face isn't adorable now. <laughs> he's just like cute in like a baby way. Okay. Like a baby face. Um, like, it, it was just, you, say, you say he's very young, but he was 33 when this movie was uh, made. He's younger than I am now. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, but uh, Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe played two FBI agents. And Willem Dafoe is sort of your standard cool, calm, intellectual, a little bit icy, collected FBI agent who's very alien to the area, very by the book, kind of nerdy. And uh, a little bit green, but has also been shot. And then Gene Hackman is your older, sort of friendly, cheerful, sloppy burnout who actually lived and grew up in Mississippi for many years and is very, very aware of the tense racial dynamics they're about to walk into, which he personally doesn't approve of and thinks is wrong. But he also is much more concerned about what, how they're going to affect the local political balances. And... Uh, the movie begins with the FBI coming in, increases and escalates tension. And there are lots of sort of um, mass images of the local white community, at specifically sometimes attacking the FBI, but usually attacking local community people, either just at church, sometimes organizing, sometimes just walking around and doing nothing, sometimes because they spoke to an FBI agent and said in public, like, I have nothing to tell you. And then they're attacked later. 
And so these images of violence get worse and worse. And finally, um, Willem Dafoe is trying to do everything by the book. And finally, Gene Hackman tells him, you cannot do everything by the book. Not with these people. They don't understand it. We have to use violence because torture works. Um, <laughs> which again, like like one of the things like, oh, this is real weird to watch post 9-11 and know that none of this works. Uh, yeah, but also 24 was made after 9-11 and he's still like, <laughs> nothing oh, changed. That is a people very always, good point. 24 always was almost torture porn, literally. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Gene Hackman's character um, ultimately sort of has a sort of intellectual romance relationship with uh, a local woman played by, what's her name, Thaddeus? Wonderfully by Frances McDormand, who is white and married to a Klansman. And eventually she is so horrified by the ongoing acts of violence and her husband's attitudes that she releases information to the FBI regarding his activities, they find out that she's doing that. She is very badly beaten by her husband and his friends. And then that's when things really take off. So I want to point out that Gene Hackman finally telling Willem Dafoe, like your nicey nice approach by the book is not going to work. Uh, the instigation is not a black people being murdered and lynched, but a white woman getting the snot beaten out of her by her husband. Just, just to put a pin in that. <laughs> Anyway, the movie ends on a, a pseudo-victorious note with pointing out a lot of the conspirators the film had been following do serve some form of jail time. And then it ends. So the the, the, the sort of thing of the movie is uh, the FBI means well, but it takes somebody who really understands the area area and is willing to get in and sort of be violent and then um, kind of implies that racism was solved. Mm-hmm. Well, I think honestly... And also, the- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, Thad. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say. And also, uh, like, most any black characters are, they're almost like a silent chorus in the background and the margins, sort of watching the FBI come in and do stuff. Right. Like it's, because, it's, as we all know, the true hero of the civil rights <laughs> movement was the, the FBI. The hero <laughs> of investigation. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Good guy FBI here Who to by show in those... no way assassinated a civil rights leader and was no, in no way no. convicted of yeah, doing such in a civil And in no way like harassed civil rights leaders and kept tabs on them and accused them of being communist. That didn't happen. Well, no. I mean, to be fair, this takes place before Fred Hampton was openly murdered by the <laughs> FBI and the Chicago police. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. It's... <laughs> It's very weird that it's framed like this, but there is can I, there is one thing I want to point out that happens actually in both of these movies, both this and Selma, mm-hmm. that I think is interesting that both of these moments happen is um, in Selma, this happens after a march. I wouldn't say exactly goes bad, but after um, people are very violently, violently beaten during a march, mm-hmm. uh, somebody... Uh, a black man runs up to another black man's like, give me, give me the keys to your shed. I know you got guns. We're going to go get them. And he's talked out of it being like, this will escalate the violence in a way that will make it uncontrollable. That's not what we want to do right now. Hmm. But there's also a scene and uh, in um, Mississippi burning where um, a black family sees that their barn has been set on fire. And the father of the family gets up, grabs his kids, says run outside and don't stop running and don't come back. And he grabs his shotgun and says, I'm not dealing with this anymore. I'm sick of this shit. And he goes out to rescue his farm animals, at which point he is lynched and murdered. Um, And his son comes up to try and save him at the last minute and does not succeed his young son. And both of these moments 
I want to point them out because there's this weird, especially I'd want to say with white people, this belief that black activists did not get angry, that they did not consider arming themselves, that these were not responses that people had, either because they were so pure or perhaps like just not smart enough. And I like in both of these movies, they're like, there were very clear reasons when and why people chose to arm or not arm themselves. Right, because I'm afraid, in, sorry if that's off topic. No, but. no, no, because in Mississippi Burning, there is a moment when the cops basically go into the black part of town of Neoshaba mm-hmm. County and start to burning it down to the ground and not letting the FBI in to stop them. Mm. Yeah, just like the, yeah, just not moving their cars while the FBI sits there. Right. Uh, Granted, the FBI something. could have just barged through, but you know. Yeah. Well, it's it's also like the way that I described this movie to Kara uh, is Mississippi Burning is a is like a Dick Tracy comic where if you just took stills of these characters, you would know what their role is in the proceedings because oh, yeah, of but... the extent to which this movie is drawn from caricature. <laughs> that is a very good point. And... Like. Like everyone, like you got clean cut Willem Dafoe with a little bit of crazy eye, but he just has that and is, you know, trying to do the right thing. Woohoo, look at me with my suit and tie. And you have Gene Hackman looking all rumpled and Gene Hackman y. And it's like, oh, that rumpledness makes him kind of similar to some of these country folk, but he's got that Gene Hackman twinkle in his eye. So you know what? And then you have Michael Rooker wandering in, just being like, hey, I am the, the just the racistest man possible, and they will dress me as such. And you have fucking. Brad Dorif or however you say his name, yeah, Brad looking looking like a melted faced like monster man, like as is like his to make way. Him. Yeah, who who if you don't know him by name was Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, uh, and that's that's where a lot <laughs> that's of like, basically our how he looks in and out of makeup. Yeah, uh, I also remember him from uh, Alien Resurrection, the, the because I'm I think the only person who watched Alien Resurrection more than once. <laughs> Well, okay, and I and I want to be clear here because we are talking about propaganda, but like yeah. Mississippi Burning and Selma, I think are examples of things that aren't intending to be propaganda in the traditional sense, like the not studio mandates. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah. not things that Although, the FBI or someone is like you should do this. These are yeah. things to people like I want to tell this story. The difference is. One of them was like, well, let's try to be a little bit more accurate. And the other one's like, let's go for the feeling. I would actually say that one of the things that, that I would say is true for both of them is while there's not like a, a, a studio like mandate, there is a cultural mandate behind both of them. Right. Because Mississippi burning is very much the way that like white people in the eras where we that we were born into wanted to think about themselves in regard to racism. Like they want to give a hero narrative and a defeat to it, as opposed to in Selma, where the, the sort of cultural mandate is, this is a truth that has been papered over by the fact that like MLK was essentially sainted in his death. And people just decided to stop paying attention to what that time was like both with him in particular and just the the country generally right. because well, yeah I, I would i would really say that mississippi burning and i do think it is honest in its portrayal of racism and it is hmm. not a hundred percent endorsement of the fbi but it is about 80 percent endorsement of the fbi <laughs> and they're like, again like they're like oh like even if like nerdy guy 
doesn't do it the right way. Um, well, he like means he means well, well. But he and like understand. white, <laughs> like white people across the board are the heroes and the organizers, and like like the the black the very real like black fear and pain. I think I mean I don't want to exactly say this, but that like it, it's sympathetic and genuine that like this is a real pain and this is a real thing that these real people experienced, but it's not really a black story. No. I would say it's not as like proppy as other things have been. It's not as much white savior as other stories I've seen, but it does dance in and out of that territory a little bit. Well, Alan Parker, the director, who, by the way, directed The Wall. So he's used to doing <laughs> very like hard to watch movies. So the yeah. fact that he did Mississippi Burning, which is a well-made movie, but also kind of bland considering who behind it. Yeah. Um, has like gone on record like we everyone knows about this time if you watch PBS documentaries, but no one watches those. Hmm. Yeah. And so he's even oh, said hey. it's fiction Sorry, in the same way that Platoon and Apocalypse Now are fictions of the Vietnam War. Hmm. But the important thing is the heart of the truth, the spirit. I keep coming back to the truth, but I defend the right to change it in order to reach an audience who knows nothing about the realities and certainly don't watch PPS documentaries. Hmm. That's an interesting there is, argument. I well, agree. There is some, sorry, there's something that, can be hard about watching a movie that's a lot of white main characters that has a lot of violence against black people. Mm. But I would, I mean, not hard, but like it, it, it can make you wonder, like, is this what should be done? But like, it where really is, feels where like, is this portrayal coming from? Right. Like, like what is the know? aim? Like, yeah. Like, is it, is it being like fetishistic? Like, is it one of those things where people point out like a lot of rape scenes are actually filmed in a way to plead to be like, yeah. titillating like right. is this a titillating kind of violence against the black body being used for entertainment yeah. and i really feel that the way that the violence portrayed in this movie against black people is like this is horrible you feel horrible you feel bad and gross and it's very much like this is like even in the people in the movie react with horror and shock when they see what is happening yeah. and i feel that that's one of those truths that he was trying to get as like this is awful look at it with your eyes well, Bob, yeah. you're talking about um, Truffaut even commented on it. It's like you can't make an anti-war film because the purpose of film is to make beautiful images. So even if you try to make an ugly image, it would still yeah. come off looking good because, again, the whole point of making a movie is to make it visually pleasing. Yeah, yeah that's actually something I was thinking while we were watching Selma is the way that Ava DuVernay sort of would often – during the scenes of like uh, assaults on protesters and things like that, a lot of it would be much more broadly framed either. And like they're going through tear gas or it's happening in darkness, but like or slow so motion. Yeah. So you're hearing a lot of this, you're hearing a lot of it and it's being sort of symbolically presented. And, and this is also true of like the bomb blast at the beginning of the movie. Uh, I don't want to go too far off the tracks into Selma since we're not there yet, but like, the very clear instances of violence are present, but they're very they're they're very carefully deployed. Right, and, and it's also I, much more in retrospect of coming from someone who has seen a lot of movies in which black bodies right. have been beaten and tortured, and it's like um, we've seen enough of that. Yeah. And even also, though this happens, <laughs> what are we going to say? Uh, 
No, the, the, I, I had something of a tangent because I was like, oh, I hadn't actually looked that much into Alan Parker. And I was like, oh, the wall, Angel Heart, Evita. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah he, he likes the, he's a very, a very he goes like, for the hard emotional truths in the film that aren't yeah. always pleasant to watch. Mm. Um, some more yeah. Parker later. The, the, uh, like, that's the thing is I, I was, I was kind of torn on Mississippi burning because like thinking of it as an artifact of its time, I, I don't want to be too mean to it because it does have some strengths and, and it's doing some things that are good. It's just, some of it is also such broad caricature considering it's drawn from an actual horrific murder, uh, that it's, ah, it's so, it gives me such a weird feeling. Okay, watch. well, so it makes a lot of stuff up. Yeah. Like, yeah. the black FBI agent Yeah, does not exist because the FBI did not have any black agents. Mm. And in fact, it's based off a story about Mr. X, who is in fact the thing that really brought the Klan down, not the Francis McDormand character, which yeah. is also a complete fabrication. It's like an insider from the, the actual like local law enforcement, wasn't it? Uh, the mob, of course. The mo- oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just I get those mixed up in my head sometimes. Don't know why. As well as you should. <laughs> uh, but uh, Chris uh, Chris Giolomo, the writer of Mississippi Burning, even said hmm. we're making up a story about facts. And yeah. and all right, we talk a lot about this. Like, there's a lot of lies to tell to get to an emotional truth. And hmm. what's interesting is Mississippi Burning makes up a whole bunch of crap. In order to tell a story that really happened, but really just to get at this one sort of emotional truth. And I think what we're all wrestling with is, is it worth it? And did they succeed? Because I also had the thought of, this feels a little exploitative because the violence just kept yeah. going on. And it's, it's one of, yeah, because it's, it's caught in this snarl, like you said, like with the Truffaut thing, but also with the need to confront audiences with some of these things that so often get whitewashed or, or diminished to tiny paragraphs in, uh, in a high school history textbook that you probably don't even get to because your curriculum goes so slow, you don't get past World War II. Right. It's such, I I I think it's also, we, we keep saying audiences, but. I feel this is a movie that was very much made for white Americans. Oh, 100%. This is <laughs> so a- it's, it's, it's one of those things that's supposed to, I wonder if it's like supposed to almost like soften the blow of institutional racism by being like, you too could be one of the good white people. Hmm. And you too will, you know, when you turn against your clan husband, cry about it, and then he'll beat you up and it'll be just like you're an activist. Well, and I, I'm not, I'm, but like, if if it gets people in, if that's what you need to get people into being like anti-racism, like I, I guess I don't. Yeah, it's such. Well, a weird... you mentioned that, and Jonathan Rosenbaum, a critic at the time, wrote, "It's a sword fantasy being trained on the murder of three civil rights workers in Mississippi in 1964, and the mm-hmm. feast for the self-righteous that emerges has little to do with history, sociology, or even common sense." Hmm. Yeah, you know, like that that self-righteousness, I think, is what I get hung up on, because yeah. like, especially not to pin anything on Francis McDormand, who I think is a wonderful treasure, but also looking at the trajectory of this movie came out in 88. And then we also have three billboards that came out <laughs> like a handful of years ago. And what have we fucking learned? About... <laughs> not to, um, I don't know, just about like. 
message movies that try and say important things by making up stuff that kind of muddles the message and like, oh, maybe maybe we should sympathize with those law enforcement people that seem like monsters sometimes after all. I don't know. Uh, Speaking to uh, Kao's really good point, this is for white audiences. Yeah. One of the critics, uh, Jack White of Time Magazine, a black critic, uh, entitled his review, Just Another Mississippi Whitewash. (laughs) And then went on to say the movie was a cinematic lynching of the truth. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I don't... I, I I actually between the two of them I like Selma more because Selma does fudge some of the yeah. details. But I would say that like in its defense, Mississippi Burning is a very competently made film that very clearly says and this is gonna sound maybe a little dumb, racism is wrong and it <laughs> is endemic. What? Like okay. it says those two things very clearly, and you know what? Not every movie that tries this says those things. But, uh, well, Ebert agrees with you. Ebert's like, we knew the outcome of this case when we walked into the theater. Well, we may have forgotten or never known and exactly what kind of currents were in the year 1964. Mm. Um, but I think uh, you guys bring up a really good point of the two audiences that are in that theater. The mm. white audience and the black audience. Or even just POC audience. Yeah. And who the movie is ultimately for it because this movie does i don't think anything for anyone who isn't white no mm-hmm. uh, well it also it's solely uh, like this because maybe this just is me harping on my weird like dick tracy caricature argument but when i think of the big scenes like when you have uh steven tobolowski or however you say his name tobolowski uh, ned right tobolowski when you have ned ryerson up there giving a, a screaming <laughs> ned speech. ryerson as a clansman by the way is a hard watch <laughs> it is it really is not uh, because he's I, not great but because he is so ned ryerson. <laughs> i i absolutely as soon as this is like that is that ned ryerson i instantly went ned ryerson <laughs> anyway sorry we all love groundhog day but um <laughs> But, like, you know, when he's given, like, a screaming speech to the freaking Klan rally, like, the way that the audience is drawn, the way those people look, the way they're made up, the way that they're dressed is subtly communicating to the audience of, let's not kid ourselves, not just white people, but upper, like, upper, like, middle and upper class white people, that you aren't these people. Right. Like, there's a very clear visual line drawn between the bad white people and the good white people. And that's one of the things that just stuck under my skin throughout this entire movie. And no, like the bad (laughs) white people look just like us. There is not a clear, you can't draw a visual moral line. You pieces. mm, Sorry. Yeah. Which is hard because when you're making a movie, that's what you're trying to do. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And it's, it it, like winds me up because it it wants to have it's based on true events cake and uh, also play the, the very, the visual artistry game. And it it drives me up the wall. What you're saying about like war and like, you can't make an anti-war movie because it's supposed to be beautiful. Yeah. In its in a way, it's like how do you communicate that people are evil? But there's also like a lot that goes into that of um, so they're like, oh, you can tell the evil white people because they're poor and fat. Like yeah. that's what it is. Right. Poor and fat it's means evil. Over, yeah, even just like overly made up or in some other way not fulfilling attractive whiteness correctly. And it, yeah, uh, and like the uh, other thing that really like kind of subtly annoyed me about this movie at a few different parts is they're like you know have the 
the people who are being coded as the bad people, like this sort of like wilted, wet looking clothing. And it's like everybody looked like a melted candle. <laughs> it was Mississippi in the summer in right. the 60s. It was 105 degrees with no breeze. Central like, air was a little bit of ways. <laughs> Yeah. Like, like I think that you might have had it in some stores and movies and stuff like that, but like people wouldn't have had that in their houses. Like everyone right. would have looked melted, and it's unfair <laughs> to take an audience yeah. from the '80s who are going to have like air conditioners and stuff and be like, "Ah, look at these dirty, melty people in the '60s." Well, it was hot, okay? Yeah. Like it's just like like this visual language is so unfair on so many levels. Yeah, like I'm not insensitive to the visual artistry like requirements of filmmaking, but like I also I don't know, like if you're if you're trying to make something that is supposed to be based on literal people's actual deaths, like that kind of stuff gets under my skin. Um I saw this movie a lot when I was younger simply because I am a massive Gene Hackman fan. Oh what? yeah. God that man is so, like I <laughs> If I go too long without seeing Gene Hackman and then I see him again, I'm always like, God, that man is charming. <laughs> Not only that, but like, I he might be my favorite character in the movie simply because he's not great. No. <laughs> he understands he's not great. But he's also like, there's a scene in the hotel room when he talks about his father. Hmm. And yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this after he tells the story, basically how what a monster his father was. Willem Dafoe's like, and what is that supposed to mean? Think, oh, it's not supposed I don't know, to mean it's anything. A story about my daddy. <laughs> it's just a story <laughs> about my dad. And it's like this is how racism in the white spectrum works. It's yeah, part of the, it's the radiation background for everyone. Like, it is a threat of violence for. POC for white people, mm. it's this strange thing that gets passed down. Yeah. It's also interesting to see a movie that clearly has a message be able to also deploy a moment like that where where someone just delivers this very awful experience they witnessed of their father being a racist monster <laughs> and then being like, well, there's no lesson to that. That's just what happens. It's like, yeah. You know? <laughs> That's yeah. just my daddy. <laughs> That's what I grew up with, and that's how I got here. Also, showing that abuse and trauma, which racism is, like yeah, yeah, it's it's hard for me to dismiss this movie because it has strengths, but like there's a certain like there's a certain naivete or a certain shallowness to it at times that just winds me up like crazy. Well, and also, to there some are degree, moments like that that I'm like, oh no, you do know, you see. To some degree, it even gets at the element of classism when he goes, he's just a man so filled with hate, he didn't realize it was being poor killing him. Mm. Yeah. Not the black neighbor. Yeah. And it's like, yes, because that, as we know from history, is how they used <laughs> racism as a dividing tool of, yeah, you're poor, yes. but you're not black. Yeah, there's this. Uh, there's actually someone who talks about that in Selma. I think there was uh, somebody gave a speech near the end. <laughs> Sprite was important. Sprite <laughs> just made it up. <laughs> Speaking of Selma, entertainment. which by the way, Ava DuVernay basically said the same thing as Gilamo and Parker about Mississippi Burning. Like she's not making a documentary. She's making yeah. a movie. And yet somehow she managed to do something that no other person's ever been able to do. is she make yeah. a very honest historical docudrama. Yeah. Uh, that, that was interesting. Because what was that, that, the, that website that you sent us? Um yeah, I'll have to look it up real quick. I don't know. Jeremiah sent us uh, while he's looking at it. I'll, I'll just talk. 
it was a site that had the like essentially testing the historical accuracy of different supposedly uh historical films and uh selma by a country mile was at the top <laughs> of that list because it had these like scene by scene breakdowns and you could sort of visually look at uh at uh what they were and uh yeah most movies that are based on true stories uh are in air quotes <laughs> Well, it's also why, speaking of uh, Francis McDormand, Fargo is so great because it's based on a true story. No, it's not. But it could happen. <laughs> Fucking The Exorcist bills itself <laughs> as being based on a true story. And that, uh, or, or, okay, this is a super tangent, but there's a new Conjuring movie com- coming out soon <laughs> or already out or something. And I refuse to watch any of those movies because the people, like those, the Ed and Lorraine, whatever, those are con people. They are, they are, they're liars and they get to be like ghost fighters in movies that people will think are true and it i hate it i hate it so much also they're exploiting a very real and tragic murder yeah information is beautiful with the website visualizations yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay thank you <laughs> <laughs> and now the sad fat has exercised whatever demon was in him it never goes away. It just quiets down. <laughs> it just every stays. Sits on my soul. <laughs> um, Ava DuVernay's 2014 Selma, which, mm-hmm. as she said, is less about Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King, and more about the movement. Mm-hmm. And much like with Mississippi Burning, they ha- it had its defenders and its detractors. Mm-hmm. Um, the former Johnson policy advisor, Joseph Califano, said no one should see this film. Oh, that's the a, head that's of the LBJ one. Presidential Library. If you're noticing a pattern here, Marga oh, no. <laughs> Updegrove uh, says the portrayal of LBJ flies in the face of history. You don't quite see Which... how productive that partnership was and how it came to bear on our getting voting rights in this country. Which is interesting because uh, my my resident expert and extraordinary fan of the presidency of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, is is a huge fan of the portrayal of Johnson in this movie. Let me see if I can get her on the line. Uh, Kara? <laughs> so, qu- quick quick thing. In 2008, I actually uh, volunteered for the Democrats uh, to get out the vote in Iowa. Okay. And they asked us, like, oh, like, you're volunteering for the Democrats. Like, who is your favorite Democrat president? And so, like, the pop- most popular answers were, like, Kennedy and Roosevelt, which I think are lazy answers. Right. And then there were a few Carters, which makes sense. And this has been 2008. There were a few Clintons, which it's like, well, I mean, you know, live your truth. And I remember I said, <laughs> Lyndon B. Johnson. And the person who was in charge is like, um, why? I'm like, well, I'm not on board with the Vietnam War. I said, but like the war on poverty, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. He was an aggressive defender of that. And like uh, the war on poverty. I think I might have said that, which I'm like, like he, he was a gr- he did many things in his domestic presidency that we still use. Like he, he was the one that kicked off Head Start, right? And Medicare. Mm-hmm. Well, Medicare and, like, and Medicaid. So, I get the two confused. Yeah, and she's like, um, "Well, he was just a very conservative president." And I'm like, yeah. "So you want Mister he- Mister Bleeding Head Wound is better? Who couldn't get anything done?" Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I'm, yeah, no, the, it is astonishing how little LBJ is discussed in any kind you know of modern-day political discourse. When Southern, like, Dixiecrat 
obstructionist tools would get in the way of any legislation he wanted to pass, but especially civil rights legislation. He was like six foot two, six foot three. He would go up to them, unzip his pants, pull out apparently like his incredibly large penis and wave it at them and tell them to fuck off. <laughs> and then he used to, he would also get in people's faces and scream like literally in their face, screaming at them as saliva flew out of his mouth that they were going to like vote for civil rights. And like, it is at this point I must tell you that the LBJ bio- uh, biography directed by Rob Reiner and starred Woody Harrelson is not good. <laughs> but like, That's because it was not the version of LBJ that we got in Selma, which was <laughs> perfect. So, uh, so, so my personal opinion of LBJ is this. Um, he would have never temporized. He would have never been embarrassed to say exactly what he was doing and why to King's face. So there's the beginning of Selma. King is like, voting rights is the most important thing. And LBJ is like, well, I mean, but other things are more important. And kind of like, like, kind of like. point is that that didn't make LBJ a big enough asshole. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't believe that he would have done that for a second. I think he would have told King like, well, that sounds like a you problem. I have other things I'm working on. Good luck with that, Mr. Bye-bye. And then just like walked off. Well, That's he does say that at another time. He does yeah. say it. Later, but he—I think he would have been more consistent. Anyway, but I, I, I should I'm probably cu- I should probably cut in here because we don't want to spend all of the conversation about this movie talking about LBJ. It's just one of those <laughs> yes. things where, like, white people, yeah, like Kara hard disagrees with these supposed LBJ defenders, and her main critique is that he's not enough of an ass, and that it should have been, uh, like, that's the only problem. Well, I honestly think that their critiques, if the the movie had made him harder, where he is like, I'm not going to do what you want to do because I have an ideological belief that what you're pursuing is not the best way to go about this. And I want to pursue this other avenue of attack that I think is more important. I think that that is more true to what he would have said and been like in like my sort of like back of the envelope opinion. Well, I think also it's uh, LBJ representing like 100 years of government and transients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fact, <laughs> and, and I think he's also like the most supportive version of it, right. like, but still carrying that legacy. Like it's it's a uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's also that. interesting that Ava DuVernay, unlike Mississippi Ben, it's like, hey, the FBI, you know what they did? They harassed <laughs> and bugged and stalked members of the civil rights movement. They were yeah. not cool. But there is okay, so so real hide quick that at all. <laughs> very brief plot of the movie. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, very brief is that um, I'm going to be skipping over a lot of things. I'm sorry. But essentially, um, Selma, uh, uh, King and his entourage determined that Selma is a really good place to do a stand because of the fact that there is a lot of racism and that honestly, it's going to be very public when there's white resistance to like um, voting. Because their sheriff is too dumb to know better. Yeah. <laughs> And so a variety of things happen. So they try to do um, like a sit-in to get to the courthouse. It doesn't go super well. They decide that they're go- there's violence um, against like the black processors. They decide that they're going to do a march. Um, the march becomes super violent. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is not at the first march at Selma. And the reason he's not is that he and Coretta are in a very tense moment where the constant harassment and threat of violence has begun to wear on her. And she can't deal even with like the dark humor of them being like, yeah, we're probably going to be shot eventually. Uh, Then gosh, then uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Does end up going back to Selma to lead a huge March. And the first March on Selma 
out of Selma to the capital that he's not there for ends in horrific, horrific violence, which is 100% true. This is the fire hoses, dogs, tear gas, people being beaten as they're like screaming, people being beaten as they're unconscious. Man on the horse with whip. Yeah, Yeah, man on the horse with whip. Images on the bridge. And what happens is so Martin Luther King Jr. is not there for that. Dr. King is not there for that because he's at home because he's like, I have to deal with my home life for a moment. And it goes essentially in 1960s parlance, this violence goes viral. And Mm -hmm. he goes back to lead the second march out of Selma. And before he does, he puts out a call. He's like, I'm asking the clergy of the nation to join me to protest and help. And so like he shows up and there's like, um, a Jewish rabbi who says, and like first thing this Jewish rabbi says to him is like, you, you called and we came. And then there are a bunch of, there's a bunch of images of like white people around the country, like seeing these images of violence. And so a lot of um, preachers and pastors and church leaders from all over the country who are white, like descend on Selma. And there's this huge multi, multi um, colored March of like different groups of people that are willing to stand with the black people of Selma and King goes to across the bridge. The riot police have been told, but that they're supposed to stand down. So they step out of the way. And there's a moment where King can either go forward on the March and he kneels, everyone kneels and prays. And he decides that he's not going to go forward because part of it is that he is so traumatized by the black people. Um, there's been a, a black man that was murdered earlier um, he's so uh, traumatized Haley by, Jackson. yeah, he's so traumatized essentially by the violence against black people and black bodies. He's like, I don't feel that I can walk these people into a possible meat yeah. grinder. Yeah. He's like, I, I just, I don't, don't know if I can do that right now. And then it ends up with, um, there ends up being an incident of violence where one of the people who came out, one of the, the white religious leaders who came out to like be supportive is actually beaten and murdered in the street and eventually oh, James Reeb James Reeb. And so eventually King does decide to March and they do do the March from Selma to the Capitol. And at the Capitol, he speaks. And before he goes, the FBI has been on and off villains and heroes, kind of not heroes, but um, like Actually who... awful and the, or just sort of passively in the background. Right. Yeah. Uh, because at this point, like one of the FBI agents like tells King, like, we'll try to protect you, but there's a very good chance you're going to get shot on this march. And he's like, yeah, well, that is what it is. But they also create a fake sex tape and send it to his wife, which even she well, admits that she knows is fake. Well, actually, you're reading that backwards, Kara. She says that she knows what he sounds like, which is not implying that it's fake. They did do that, though. They did create a fake sex tape. Right. I think was that's it Sorry, I might be reading historical I into thought, it. I thought that it was that they sent a real sex tape. Um, my my assumption was they sent a fake one, but she knows that he's been cheating on her anyway. Yeah, I don't want to say mm. like I think it's a fake sex tape because she says I oh, know okay. I know what you sound like, but she also knows that he's having affairs. Okay, I I, I took that the other way around. I thought that like uh, I'm going to be honest. I don't I'm not usually say this. I think you completely misread that scene. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's that's possible. I will like, say I, this: that scene is also one of the reasons why the speeches in this movie are not actual MLK speeches. Yeah. Because MLK's family refused to sign off on this movie because David Devine was like, "No, I'm going to talk about how he had a fist." Oh, because it confronted the the infidelity. Like, yeah, that's, because it confronted the infidelity. It confronted the fact that Martin Luther King Jr., while a great man, was a man. He was flawed mm. deeply. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's also, there are also like a lot of other threads that are pulling through this. Um, so one of the big threads that's coming through is like the local um, on the ground organizers in Selma have a lot of tension resistance where they feel that, ML, that Mr. King has, Dr. King has not been helpful in other areas that he's gone to, that he doesn't understand the local thing, that he's going to be in and out like a flippity gibbet and leave them holding the bag, which flippity gibbet. Untrue entirely, and it was something that was very much part of the tension of the rights movement. Hmm. At one point in time, like Malcolm X shows up and he talks to Coretta, and he's like, I'm going to speak here because the way, I don't know exactly how he says it, but the way it's put up is they can, the white people can either align with Dr. King and choose a path of integration, or they can fight people like me. Yeah, he's essentially saying that, like, no, you see, Dr. King is the carrot, and my job is to be the stick that. He is no. essentially yeah. trying to drive the Overton window in, in a different direction to be, as he puts it, a help to Dr. King. Well, yeah, and this is um, at a point in Malcolm X's life where he's changing a little bit. He's been mm-hmm. kicked out of his um, out of his Church of Islam because he's mm-hmm. exposed to brother, I forget the guy's name, Elijah Muhammad. And he's about to go to, uh, go to Mecca. So this is a very, and this is shortly before he'll be shot. Yeah. Well, because yeah. like we see him and then like a couple of scenes later, like they're talking about him being murdered. And it's just like, yeah. Ooh, so much happens in this time. <laughs> and it's, uh, and like one of the things that I actually think is a great thing that comes up over and over again is the anxiety that everyone feels like, are we doing the right thing? Are we in the right mm-hmm. place? Is this the best way to do it? Are we going to die? We're probably going to die. If we die and this isn't the best way to do this, what will have we accomplished? And also like the tension between like, what is the best thing to be doing? Not in terms of just like strategy. And they do discuss strategy a lot here of why they're in Selma and what they're going to be doing and why they want to set it up this way. Um, Cause it has to be on camera. Otherwise it's not going to work. Hmm. And the other thing is that, um, that like the discussion that LBJ and Dr. King have at the very beginning of the movie is Dr. King says, we need to be able to vote because we can't stop the violence against ourselves without political power. Like we can't even get on juries. So when there's violence against black people and it even goes to court, all white juries acquit them. Like we have no power. And then LBJ responds with like, poverty is more important because when you lift people out of poverty, you give them power. And it's two sides of the same coin, but in like LBJ is like, I can't fight this war on too many fronts. I can't, do voting rights and I can't do poverty. I can't do this. And I can't do, I can't do all of these things. Something has to wait. And Martin Luther King Jr. is like, we can't wait anymore. We've been waiting. Yeah. And it's, it's something that like, even like later on when he's talking to like um, some of the on the ground grassroots activists of like, you're not being effective enough, but you are needed and what you're doing is right. And then later on, like he's at one point in jail talking to one of his compatriots, like, with doubt, like, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right way to do this? Am I getting people killed? Like, w- and his friend assures him, like, basically, like, we are doing what we have to do. And then adds, by the way, this gel cell is probably bugged. <laughs> well, also, what someone does a really good job of doing is in that same uh, conversation, LBJ is like, you guys already have the right to vote. It's like, you know, we have the right, mm-hmm. but we don't have the ability. Yeah. And because mm-hmm. we actually see Oprah Winfrey at one point in the movie trying to exercise her right to vote yeah yeah 
And, it's, and it's, uh, yeah, it's such a great clash between. Well, they, they also they also have a great scene where they're they're talking about the right to vote, and it has various activists like shouting at each other about, you know, no, the poll taxes are the problem. It's not the poll tax; it's the literacy tax. No, it's the vouchers. It's the this. It's the that. And they literally explain it to you like, the problem is that in order to vote in this county, a registered voter has to give you a voucher which you can't get because there are no registered black voters. Once you get the voucher, then you go and you take a test. The test is impossible to pass. If you pass the test, you have to pay the poll tax and the poll tax increases for every year that you were not registered to vote. And also when you get registered, they put your name and address in the local in paper. The news- <laughs> <laughs> like they do a really good job of showing how yeah, legislation, what institutionalized racism looks like. And it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's truly like this maddening cycle of insanity and what I think I like is that at the very end, Dr. King is giving his speech um, on the Capitol steps, and he's talking about um, – one, one thing that he talks about is like how racism teaches poor white people that the black person is the enemy when yeah. really it's poverty. And then we see LBJ pushing forward the Civil Voting Rights Act, arguing that every person will have the right to vote. And it's great because in that moment, they are reflecting what each other's position was at the beginning of the film. And to me, the lesson from there is give ground on nothing. (laughs) Well, Ava DuVernay even said, I didn't want to tell a Martin Luther King Jr. biopic. I wanted to do a movie about the movement. Yeah. Yes. And And part of that is what makes those I would agree that that's what it is. Yeah, it, it makes those scenes that, that could, like, the fact that this movie can be very instructive about what it is to fight both legislatively and on the street as an activist without really feeling didactic. Right. This yeah. movie, for being a movie that is centered around a lot of religious figures, uh, <laughs> is not actually that preachy. It's, <laughs> it's a trip through this time with these people in a way that, you know, though she is saying that, like, she's making a, a film, like, that she's not a historian, does a, like, as far as, uh, like, we have seen, like, does a very good job of capturing the this uh, with a, a spirit of accuracy that is rare uh, with these, th- this sort and, of genre of film. And and I would say it is it is a film about the movement and about what being in a movement does to people. Mm. Like, it destroys your marriage. It puts your children at risk people will may die and you have to kind of decide where you're going to be at and what you're going to do with this mm. and like there are several there is a, like, a young activist who is not happy with most of the decisions martin luther king uh dr king does especially when he the, like, this young activist like is with his friends uh yeah it was john, it was, john, it was the guy who was john working lewis. with john lewis yeah but i forget the other guy's name off the top of my head and he's like, I'm not going to march with King's people. Like, my job is to get people registered to vote, not march or whatever, like, silliness that, that, that they're doing. Like, this isn't the activism that I'm here for. And then after the violence at the first march, he's like, I will march in solidarity. And then when King turns around and doesn't basically confront the possibility of a trap with the um, uh, guard, with the, the National Guard, uh, yeah. he's really angry. And he's like, no, I wanted to march forward. Like, like once again, King, you have disappointed me. <laughs> and I think that that's one of the things that get lost is there are a lot of people, not just Malcolm X types, who are like not feeling the MLK 
energy like they weren't into it and it also shows very clearly that like he was not planning these things alone he had a cohort and a posse and they weren't just acting out of like the instinct of love they're like we're going to go here because we're going to get beat on national television choices being made and that's not and it's not wrong to do that like Mm -hmm. there's this like the myth is that they didn't do that right yeah yeah like there's this idea in the sort of like the the rose tinted glasses look back at the civil rights uh protests and uh, it, that like oh no these people were just doing the right thing and and that's why they won no they won because they put in a lot of work to in some way like to, to put themselves and others in danger in ways that would forward the cause like that's well and it even shows that something like nonviolence it's not mm. just something you do on a whim you yeah. have to have a class. You have to teach people, like, the cops are going to do this. They're going to try to provoke you. And this is how you block. Yeah, this is one of the things that's fascinating when, like, you know, we live in a, in a, a time that it, a lot of people will talk about, like, oh, no, you see, these these are, aren't are real protesters. Look at these people are trained and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, yeah. like Because you don't go into protester. this. <laughs> yeah. You, you, the first times you go to a protest, like if you don't learn things from someone automatically or you don't get someone to teach you stuff like you're, you're, you're not going to be doing the right stuff. Like <laughs> learning is a part of protest. It's not just <laughs> it's not like it's it, you don't just walk in a direction. Just despite what some movies have taught us, it's not a natural thing. Yeah. yeah. The the thing. Well, and like even as the scene where they're like at the courthouse and like an older man is like being like beaten and attacked Mm. and it doesn't quite go well because people try to protect him and like fight back against the police, which is not what they're supposed to be doing. Mm. Like you have to train self-preservation out of people if you're going to do this kind of nonviolent resistance. And I also wanted to add that like uh, I did get teary eyed during some parts of this because and uh we talked a little bit about this like before we turned on the recording uh it it reminded me a lot of the things that we've seen happen the past year the kind of violence we've seen happen against protesters and people and the other thing is that like when i used to watch movies about this kind of thing you know a decade or so ago especially when i was a kid like in the 90s or very early 2000s one thing that you would think is like, wow, I can't believe that people used to be like this. And now you watch it and you think, why are we still like this? Right. Yeah. Why is this still what's happening? It's 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 different in many ways, but it not in enough ways. Well, one of the things that really struck me, um, it, it's just a weird detail that stuck in my head. But like the fact that this was you know, when the the attack on the the selma marchers happened it was live on cbs and Mm -hmm. like if you don't understand what broad like what television and like what like broadcast tv was in the 60s like that made it inescapable it was like three channels yeah this was being shown on if it was just on one channel it was on like you know a third of all media and this is actually i'm sorry jeff fox Mm. jeff foxworthy routine the president's on he's on every Uh, channel we're gonna miss flipper but but yeah like this was inescapable and like the raw experience of it was inescapable in a way that is not true anymore because now you like there is no and, and this isn't exactly a criticism of media today but it is something that we have to think about in that like vitally important events like this 
can easily just be ignored and you can just wait until the people you agree with contextualize it for you. Or if you don't like it, depending on the news stuff that you follow, you just won't hear about it. Like when we look at, at protests uh, in Minneapolis, like how is the, the ongoing occupation of George Floyd square covered? Well, some places it's just not right. And uh, I, there's, yeah, just like the fractured landscape of media is something that in a lot of ways we just didn't grapple with as it happened. And so the ability to have a broad awareness of huge, impactful, like civil rights protest events like you could have in the 60s is gone. And well, it's like, haunting. Well, well, one big thing about that is like people are list- watching on TV or they're listening on the radio mm. as like these events of violence towards the Selma marchers are being described. And now I want to ask you guys, where were you when Princess Diana died? Probably something about a TV being on. Where were you on 9-11? Probably something about a TV being on. Okay. Where were you when George Floyd died? Because I found out on my phone. Mm. Uh, I found out about on Twitter, I believe. Yeah, yeah um, this Twitter. is a time when you only have like, you have radio, television, and newspaper. There's no, the media market isn't as saturated as it is now. And it's not as constant. Right. Like, there is no 24-hour news. There is the news. Um, I want to also point out real quick, because we haven't really mentioned name, David Oyelowo mm-hmm. is MLK. Sorry. That's fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, t- Tom Wilkinson as LBJ, who I think everyone loves. Um, <laughs> the scene that I tear up every time is, is a scene before they meet Malcolm X between Carmen Iago, who plays, uh, Coretta King and mm-hmm. Laura Toussaint, Lorraine Toussaint, um, who basically like gives her a pep talk. Mm. And it's so like, it's one of the things you all of a sudden realize you don't get many civil rights movies where you just have two black women talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and talking about fear right fear and like the feeling of helplessness of what we can do um those those little moments like you know in a there's another moment that hit me similar to that like actually at the opening of the movie where we're we spend like those like 30 seconds or so with the little girls who are walking down the stairs in the church just talking about their hair and like the way that like baptism will uh mess up their hair which you know, but black hair takes uh, very particular kinds of care that, as white people, we generally don't know as much about. Right. Well, also, and, there's, like, a... there's something very private and personal and real about that that's just interrupted with horrific violence that is different than just seeing a depiction of an explosion. Right. I think also um, this movie has, much like Mississippi Benning, a very large cast. Mm. Yeah. And each one has, like, just a little moment. Tessa Thompson shows up. Common's yeah. in there. Roy Wood Jr., Cole Domingo. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield, who Lakeith I Stanf- will watch in absolutely anything. <laughs> um, Giovanni Ribisi. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Cuba Gooding Jr., Tim Roth. <laughs> the president himself, Martin Sheen, shows up. <laughs> yeah, as a judge, which is weird, because is he not the neoliberal president that we all once wanted? <laughs> we thought we did. Oh, uh, I mean, I still would like a president as smart and compassionate. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it does a very good job of like giving a, a place and time 
a sort of mundane reality because we see yeah. them just joking with each other like man i'm hungry or, oh yeah yeah, yeah. The, the scene where all of uh the the uh the civil SCLC rights people get guys, together. yeah all the SELC guys like just burst in on that kitchen and are, are like just slowly <laughs> basically giving each other crap yeah it's so good <laughs> because you know you have fun with the people you hang out with. <laughs> yeah uh and also it's like this thing like these people know each other this is the notebook, the support system. Mm. They're friends, they're compatriots, they're comrades, they're enemies. They, yeah, I, I, they have very real interpersonal tensions. Like it doesn't feel caricatured in the way that, that the interactions in Mississippi burning kind of inescapably do, which is interesting because of how broad a historical, like, I don't, I mean, I don't have a better way of saying it kind of a broad historical caricature culture has of, of Dr. King generally, like the, the kind that we would receive in our, our school classes. Well, yeah. And I think also Oyelowo just sort of like, he does the thing like with Anthony Hopkins does for Nixon. And it's like, he doesn't play, he plays him, but he isn't like doing an imitation. Not doing a bit. Yeah. Right. It's also the same thing with Tom Wilkerson as LBJ. Tom Wilkerson Mm -hmm. also played Ben Franklin and John Adams. And people are like, well, research theater is like, I don't do any research. I just read the script and I do the part. (laughs) (laughs) I play the character, right? No one cares. This is my job. I understand what it is. Right. What do you... uh, if you wrote it well and the director knows what they're doing, then it'll turn out fine. <laughs> it's like, I don't need to watch 70 hours of some dead guy. No one knows what Ben Franklin did to look like. Who cares? <laughs> oh, God. Tom Wilkinson rules. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Um, so we're running out of time. So we're going to have to wrap this right. up. Uh, Selma, I think, as we both do. Also, I think Selma is uh, aimed at all audiences. Mm. I think Selma also hits people, different audiences different ways because it covers such a broad spectrum. Yeah. Like well, one of the things... For white Sorry, people, it's instructive. For non-whites, it's uh, an accurate and honest story from their perspective. Hmm. I think one of the things that this movie does that I, I wish more movies that are essentially like period pieces to the not especially like far past, but still past is that it doesn't feel like it's trying to lean on the imagery of that era it feels like these are just people they're not 60s people they're people right who happen to be alive in the 60s yeah and i I mean i feel like the more i learn about all history whether it be recent or ancient is that in a lot of ways human beings have not changed even a little bit (laughs) and Trying to make things like trying to make the the other eras seem distant or inaccessible in weird, quirky ways is kind of, I don't know, I've I've lost a taste for that. And I prefer to be like, let's let's draw some real people in these places. And uh, and this movie just does that. Right. Kev, final thoughts? Um, I think if you're going to watch only one of them, I would recommend watching Selma. I think it's in terms of like value and utility, it's much more reflective of things that are happening today and the sort of nuances of if you want to be an activist, here's how you be an activist and you will be afraid. (laughs) Um, So I like that, but I would, I would still recommend twinning it with more modern things, especially things that are uh, black created, but I do honestly still think there might be value in 
white people, especially watching something like Mississippi Burning, because it does talk about a lot of different things that even if they didn't happen at this moment in time were things that did happen. There were lynchings, there were bombs, there were things like this. And so I think to keep in mind, this is an emotional story, not a literal one. I think there is still value in digesting it, but you really want to have something else that gives you perspective. I think Selma is sort of like the new mold of how to do this type of movie. And Mississippi Burning is just more of like, this is the way we used to do these types of stories. Yeah, its flaws don't make it unwatchable. And I think it's important. Like, honestly, I'm glad that I watched Mississippi. I'm more glad than I thought I would be going in that I I would watch (laughs) Mississippi Burning. Like, not that I thought it would be bad, but like, I kind of clench when I watch older movies about like civil rights uh, (laughs) events. And this one, like its flaws are pretty clear. But I think being aware of the ways that that like white people have failed to grapple with certain aspects of this and ways that they've succeeded. I think that that looking at those things and looking at those weaknesses and being able to say, like, yeah, uh, this is worth it's worth knowing about that, you know. All right. That's all the time we have. Um, Join us next time when we'll talk about something. I'm not sure what yet. Yeah, probably some motion pictures. Ooh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that's all the time. Say goodbye, Thad. Goodbye! Say goodbye, Kara. Bye. All right, everyone, have a good one.